Imagine if you will, you see something you can't quite explain. Maybe it was an object in the sky. Maybe something else equally unexplainable. Later, you are visited by strange men asking strange questions and threatening your life. Though they dress the same and seem very much human, something you can't explain just seems very off with these gentlemen. You're listening to the Mysterious Bruce Podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of The Men in Black. humid beach somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. <laughs> I don't think those go together. Well, just somewhere that's not Georgia. We, we're, any of those listening? We're we not have, in Georgia. We've not been, we've, we're not in Georgia, we've never been in Georgia. <laughs> I don't even know where Georgia is. We don't know anything. Because this is the first thing we've covered, man. I'm actually kind of worried that we might see some Active. You mean the FBI van's not going to be incognito anymore? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a beautiful, beautiful Saturday afternoon because we are here in quarantine in an unknown location that may be in the south somewhere. <laughs> but we cannot record on our normal Friday nights anymore because we have to be indoors by 6 p.m. or we're going to get a misdemeanor. So I don't need that. <laughs> Well, this is a beautiful Saturday afternoon, so. But we are determined to keep recording, even though this is still getting kind of rough out there. We don't know when this will all end, but anyway, nobody cares anymore. Let's move, nobody wants to hear about it anymore. So, well, uh, we got a lot of traction from our last... Um, podcasts about the uh the cases in arkansas we are very popular in arkansas i hope it's popular not infamous i believe it may be moving towards infamous because we got flooded our inboxes were flooded with tips and stories and just some stuff that like well this is my uncle and this happened to him and it's been unsolved and this happened to m- and just we were like oh shit we may need to back the fuck off because <laughs> yeah. we don't want to end up somewhere dead in Arkansas. Yeah, um, but we did get some uh, some feedback on Saddlebock Brewing Company, and hopefully the boys and girls at Saddlebock. Uh, yeah, they liked our post, so that's good. They, we actually had some people comment on that they needed to go try that beer, so hopefully they see some yeah, some new patrons. And speaking of patrons, we got a new Patreon patron. His oh, name nice. was Thomas Samuels. Nice. He sent us a, or actually he didn't send us, he joined for the $10 tier. Hey, any tier is a good tier, unless it's a tier in my beer. So, That's right. And oh. we got a new five-star rating? We got two. Oh. One just come through. First one is from a Jordan Holly with three Y's. Jordan Holly with three Y's. Says, I'm hooked. Just found y'all and I'm already hooked going episode to episode. I'm trying to share it around as much as I can. I'm glad to have found y'all. Keep up the good work. 
I have a fun time listening to some southern guys talk about some real mysteries. Thank y'all. Thank you. Great, great um, uh, review. We we certainly appreciate it. It's amazing to us that we have anybody listening. So when someone does, we are very thankful. Um, the next one is from April in Arkansas. Posted 15 hours ago. A great listen. She said, so funny, but very informative at the same time. I don't know why teachers couldn't be this cool when I was in school. Well, I appreciate that. I, I used to be cool. Like, it was, it's been a while. But I'm still going to be that goofy bitch I've always been, but <laughs> just getting a little out of touch. Yeah. Uh, we also had a, a review on Facebook real quick. We were just not, we're not going to harp on all this, patting ourselves on the fucking back the whole damn time, but it's nice sometimes. When you can do that, um, let's see. Well, shit. Well, actually, I'll since you're looking for that, we had uh, one of the family members of our Arkansas case uh, liked our post, uh, has not commented, um, but did like our post and has joined our Facebook page. Oh, nice. So we do appreciate that. Hopefully, we did that case justice, and hopefully, it will see some some positive light and maybe move towards getting that death changed uh update the our honey malone case they finally arrested a suspect in the case as of yesterday i believe or they may have arrested the person on thursday i've not looked into it but thank god they finally arrested someone in that case and hopefully that case gets solved yeah for real because everybody deserves justice and that's what this the reason why we cover a lot of the true crimes to to bring awareness to these cases and hopefully hopefully find justice for the victims i can't find what i was looking for so i'm sorry that's um but the reason why we picked today's case is because we we are mysterious brews. We're not true crime brews. You know what I'm saying? Like we don't yeah. cover true crime cases that have been solved. We don't want to corner ourselves into true crime. We're fascinated by it. We love a good mystery when it comes to true crime. We love good disappearances, but we still want to try to keep it true to our intentions. We want to. We don't want to keep doing true crime over and over and over and over and over again though most people may probably like it better than our um types of cases like this if you if you are a listener this is probably going to be pretty similar to our black-eyed children case with us going over an overview and then doing some of the most famous cases but uh let's get started so and tonight's uh beer is elsian space dust ipa I figured that was a great little beer to use. It comes from the state of Washington, and it is a hefty 8.2%. Golden amber in color, and has a aroma of pine, and has a little bit of citrus at the end. So it is true to the IPA, so well, check them out. The, and the, well, the good thing is available in Georgia now. If you want us, A, to do a case close by your your the your, way you live where you're living if you want us to do a case i guarantee you if you say hey man i'm about to send you guys some beer will you do this case I amen damn tell you we'll do it it gets bumped to the top we will, <laughs> we will dance for our dollar you know what i'm saying 
Yeah, you want to go straight to the top. That's a good way to do it. So let's dive into it. We are going to touch on the infamous, the Men in Black, and we, it's not Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith. Hey, that first movie was really good. Uh, I actually think the third movie was pretty good. I haven't seen the International, and I didn't really care for uh, Part Two, even though I'm a huge Johnny Knoxville fan. I don't really think it was a great movie. So he was funny in that one, but he's funny in anything. So according to our research. The first, well... Well, let's go, what are the men in black? So what happens is, in most cases, people are going to see a UFO, or they're going to see what they feel is an alien, and not long after, they're going to be visited by people dressed in all black. They tend to be very tall, they tend to be very slender, and they're, from all intents and purposes, there's just something off about them their movements are real mechanical they have pale pale white skin and a lot of them have the same haircut or they look identical well most of well, some of the things i've seen that most of them look as if they're wearing wigs yes. because most of them are bald hairless completely they've even been described as having lips painted on them basically stating without stating outright that they're aliens themselves or they're you know, in many cases that's where that is how they have been uh, described. So the first case that is reported to have Men in Black in it is yeah. This basically started the whole Men in Black phenomenon. Before this, there was nothing really reported. Right, and this incident occurred around the Maury Island in Washington State, and. That is basically about six miles west of Des Moines, Washington. And it occurred on June 21st. Harold Dahl and his son and a friend and their dog were out on a boat on the eastern shore of Maury Island. Dahl says that he looked into the sky and saw six objects floating about 2,000 feet above his boat. The objects were made of some type of reflective metal they were donut shaped and about 100 feet in diameter. The center of these objects were about 25 feet in diameter and it was just a void. It was a hole, so it looks like donuts. He stated that he saw round portholes in what he thought was an observation window. Five of the craft circled over the sixth one, which dropped slowly. It stopped and hovered about 500 feet above the water. Dahl said that he headed to shore because he was afraid the center craft was going to crash into his boat. Once ashore, Dahl took several pictures with his camera. The lower ship stayed in position for about five minutes, with the others still circling above it. One of the ships left the formation and moved down, touching one of the lower ships. The two kept contact for what seemed like several minutes, Dahl stated. He said that he heard a thud and suddenly thousands of pieces of what he thought were newspapers dropped from the inside of the center ship. Most of the debris landed in the bay, though some of it did hit the beach. Here comes the bad part. Yeah. Dahl recovered a few pieces, finding it was a white, lightweight metal. Along with the metal, the ship dropped about 20 tons 
of a dark metal, which he said looked like lava rocks. When the lava rocks hit the water, it was so hot that steam erupted. So they take cover after several pieces started to land on his boat. Some of the debris hit his son on the arm, burning him, and another piece hit his dog, killing the dog. Oh, man. After the rain of metal, the craft rose into the air and headed west out to sea together. Dahl went back to his boat and tried to radio for help, but the radio did not work. They sailed back towards the dock, dropping the dog over the side of the boat as a burial at sea. Dahl then took his son to the hospital for treatment and then told his boss, Mr. Fred Chrisman, what had happened. Dahl gives Chrisman his camera that he took the pictures with, and when the pictures were developed, they showed a very strange airship. However, the negatives had spots on them, which he compared to film damaged by exposure to radiation. Christmas said he did not believe Dahl's story, but nevertheless, he went back to Maury Island where he gathered some of the rock samples. He said that while he was gathering the rocks, one of the ships appeared overhead as if it was watching him. Dahl told investigators that the next morning, a man wearing a black suit visited him and suggested they go to breakfast together. Dahl drove his own car following the stranger's new black Buick to a restaurant. While they ate, the stranger asked no questions. Instead, he gave a detailed account of what had happened to Dahl the day before. Yeah, the man himself gave the detailed account. It wasn't Dahl repeating it right. to him. It was the man telling Dahl what happened. And the man in black warned Dahl that bad things would happen to him and his family if he told anyone about the incident. And this is going to be an underlying current in this whole episode. Well, the reason why we know about this, you know, they told him to shut his damn mouth, and but he, he did for a long time. He didn't come out and tell anybody for a long time because he was so scared. So, And this story goes even deeper if you are interested in it. And there's some high strangeness involved in this whole Harold Dahl case. Now, that was probably the first incident, but like Coach said, it did not come out till years later. Most people give credit to Albert Bender. Yeah, Albert K. Bender is probably the most famous of the men in black. And he was from Pennsylvania. He was born on June 16, 1921. He had served in the Army Air Force during World War II. And then he relocated to Bridgeport, Connecticut with his mother, Ellen, and his stepfather, Michael Ardolino. And they lived at 784 Broad Street. Now, Albert was the chief timekeeper at Acme Shear Company. And at the time, Acme Shear Company was the largest manufacturer of scissors. And everybody's probably thinking, Who the, what the hell's a timekeeper? Well, huh. basically... He walked around and made sure everybody was doing what the hell they were supposed to do at the specific time they were supposed to be doing it. That seems like an awesome job. Yes. And he was extremely OCD, so this was right up his alley. <laughs> so now, the factory was located across the Pequinock, I'm sure I butchered that, river. No, man, you got it perfect. From downtown at Hicks and Knowlton Streets. Now, Albert had a strange 
sense of humor, and he lived in the attic of his mother and stepfather's house, and he had an assortment of 20 chiming clocks, and every 15 minutes, <laughs> half hour, and on the hour, Jeez. the whole house would resonate with dings of bells and cuckoo clocks and everything. He was eccentric to say the least. I think I could put up with that for maybe two the days first hour. before I go in there and bust every single clock. <laughs> like that scene in Hook where the kid's just like yeah. hammering them. Now, at some point during his late 20s, Bender adorned his room with a collection of monstrosities such as fake skulls, shrunken heads, his own art painted the walls black, giant spiders, uh, weird shit, if you just think <laughs> about it. And when he would have friends and coworkers come over, he made sure to take them to his room, and he had sound effects which would feature thunder, lightning, sobbing, hissing noises on his record player. He was extremely enamored with ghost stories, early horror movies, terror tales, and claimed his blood flowed with ancestral witchcraft. Mm -hmm. He named his attic room the Chamber of Horrors. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1952, Bender formed the International Flying Saucer Bureau, or as we will refer to it after this, the IFSB. One of the more famous members was Eddie Rickenbacker, and he was the World War I flying ace and also CEO of Eastern Airlines. Bender sent Albert Einstein an invitation to join, which Einstein declined, but the Bureau at the time, and this is in the 50s now, had 600 worldwide members. Bender was the president, and they were all dedicated to studying the mysterious phenomenon known as UFOs. Since he is the head of the IFSB, it is located, or the headquarters of it, were in his house. And one of the more enthusiastic members, Mr. Max Kringle, also worked as a timekeeper at the Acme Shear Company. He served as the IFSB Vice President and Assistant Director. However, Kringle lived in Stratford, Connecticut. His home was in one of the newer houses in Stratford, located between Heartland Street and Airway Drive. Now, the IFSB would release quarterly journals called the Space Review, and these newsletters were sharing stories of UFO sightings, theories about where they might be coming from. It's a good way to get on the radar. Yeah. If, if the men in black truly exist, this is the way you get them to come see you. <laughs> and it's not long after he began sending out the newsletters that some odd shit started happening. <laughs> He would report that he suffered from ill health. He would receive strange phone calls with... Well, yeah, well what it was was he was about to um, publish um, 
all his findings in the space review. He's saying he was preparing to unveil a paper that would prove the U.S. government had, in, to one degree or another, covered up proof of UFOs. So he was planning on releasing everything. I mean, he had newsletters, but this was going to be a, a full, full-fledged paper detailing everything. And then he was visited by the men in black. And this all coincided with a large flap in Connecticut, a UFO flap. And so Bender State... a UFO flap? Well, that'd be one of them there, multiple days of UFO sightings in the same geographical location. They call that a flap? That's what they they have termed it. Holy shit, I never heard that before. Now, Bender states that he went to the movie theaters one night and had this strange feeling that someone was watching him, and when he turned around, there was a strange man, according to Bender, with glowing eyes watching him. And the man followed him home. Could it be that it was the reflection of the movie from the guy? I mean, that's possible. True. Because but okay keep going Bender stated that as he was walking home he was telepathically hypnotized and he levitated off the ground okay that might not have been a reflection then yeah (laughs) he stated that the worst thing was anytime he had strange phone calls or he thought that someone was following him he would begin to feel the sickening stench of burning sulfur and this would occur in his room, at work, on the streets, and it really made him extremely sick. Mm. So, Bender would jump on this mental telepathy stuff along with his UFO research. And so, to further this, he asked his readers of the Space Review to perform a crazy request, and it was to memorize and silently recite on a specific day and time a form letter which he had written. His goal was to contact with alien life via the simultaneous thought projection of hundreds of IFSB members. Oh, wow. They nicknamed this World Contact Day, or as Bender had put in the newsletter, C-Day. And it was supposed to commence at 6 o'clock in the evening on March 15, 1953. So the message would start started off with calling occupants of interplanetary craft calling occupant occupants of inter, interplanetary craft that have been observing our planet earth we of ifsb wish to make contact with you we are your friends now world contact day is still observed by many ufo enthusiasts and it is every march 15th Damn it, we missed it. I know, man. We just barely missed it, but we missed it. All right, we got to get it on the calendar for next year. Okay. Set you a reminder. I'm doing it right now. So, (laughs) Bender's message didn't go over too well because he states that his room continued to uh, fill with the smell of sulfur, and he was telepathically ordered to cease delivering all matters that were not of his concern. And he stated that a yellow mist gathered gathered in the attic. Undeterred, Bender announced that the July issue of Space Review would hold a startling revelation. And like Coach said, this is where Bender was going to tell it all, brother, tell tell it it all. all, man. But guess what? It never made it to print. What? Oh, my God, why? 
Well, <laughs> in July of 1953, Bender states that he was visited at his home by three men. He says that all of them were dressed in black clothes. They looked like clergymen, but wore Hamburg-style fedora hats. The notorious men in black always came in threes, and they made it very clear to Bender that he was to immediately halt all of his UFO work. They communicated telepathically, stating, stop publishing, and before departing his room, they confiscated copies of the Space Review and left a yellow fog and dematerialized before his eyes. And again, the odor of sulfur could be found in his room. Albert is stated much later in life by saying that he was scared to death. He was unable to eat for days and well, he was repeatedly visited. Whatever happened, whatever they said to him and whatever they did worked because he's going to immediately shut down all his research and he's going to shut down the Flying Saucer Bureau. He's done. He is done. People that know him are saying he they're going to say he's a changed man. Said he completely different. He said his later works were rambling, almost unreadable. He seemed to ha- uh, seemed to live his life in constant anxiety and and terror. He's going to start receiving phone calls. He's going to receive phone calls that remind him to shut the fuck up because but they're not going to say anything. The phone calls aren't going to have anybody talk, but you can tell that somebody's on the other end, and then then they would hang up. He's going to receive these phone calls and he's going to keep his mouth shut all the way to the end of his life. He's going to die in 2002. This happened in what? 50, uh, 1955. Yeah. He doesn't release his book, Flying Saucers and the Three Men, until 1962. And while he was doing research for his book, and he didn't tell anybody that he was going to write a book, he would go and visit the Bridgeport uh, Library. And he says that the men in black showed up one day and told him that they were there to make sure he stopped all inquiries into UFOs and they flashed credentials supposedly stating that they were representatives of a high authority in the government and they asked extremely inquisitive questions about the IFSB. So the telepathic messages, the headaches, him being stalked and all these warnings from the men in black compelled him to cease and desist. He just stopped. Yeah, he's out done. Of nowhere. Like, out of, yeah, he's done. And the IFSB was only in existence for roughly an, a year and a half. The final issue of Space Review was released in October of 1953, and it included a cryptic message and warning. And it's, quote, The mystery of the flying saucers is no longer a mystery. The source is already known, but any information about this is being withheld by orders from a higher source. We would like to print the full story in Space Review, but because of the nature of the information, we have been advised in the negative. We advise those engaged in saucer work to be very cautious. So, after this, he gets the hell out of there. He Mm -hmm. leaves, and he moves to California. And he passed away at the ripe old age of 94. Now, one of the crazier stories that comes out later is that when they visited him, when the MIBs visited him in his attic and the yellow fog appeared, that he was transported with the three MIBs to an underground base in Antarctica, 
where they laid out who they were and their agenda. And he is stated by saying that when they showed their true selves, it resembled what some of people that delve into mysterious little things as the Flatwoods monster. And then he was teleported back and the rest, well, the rest is he shut the hell up and he moved <laughs> to California. And didn't say anything uh-uh. again. Ever. From 1962 to 2002 for 40 years. He didn't say a thing. No. So he was scared. To death. Like for sure. He lived a great life. He had kids. He married and from all accounts had a prosperous, you know, normal type life. But I'm sure that was in his back of his mind every day of his existence. So now we get into a fellow IFSB member named Gray Barker. Mm-hmm. And Gray was known to be a trickster. And this is where Gray kind of screws up the whole credibility of some of this. Because they said that he, would, he loved to pull pranks. And so most people, you know, state that his involvement in this is purely on a hoaxical level. But Gray would go on and he would write the book They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. And in his book, he detailed Bender's experiences and introduced the world to the menacing phrase, Men in Black. So Bender stressed that the dark-suited visitors were always mind-manipulating silencers of UFOs and the phenomenon. Now, Barker's book caught the attention of a very prominent figure, and that would be Mr. J. Edgar Hoover himself. Oh. Yeah. So, on August the 28th, 1953, an FBI agent visited Barker and asked him a number of questions about Albert Bender's International Flying Saucer Bureau. And it turns out that Bender had mailed Barker a package of business cards that he had printed identifying Gray Barker as, quote, the chief investigator for the IFSB. And in the pages of his book, Gray states that he had only given out four or five of those cards to his close friends, who he knew still had them when he checked with them a week later. So it was something of a surprise when the FBI turned up at his doorstep with one of the business cards, asking lots of questions. And he, in his book, would later state, he has always been puzzled how the FBI got a hold of one of his cards. Now, there is a released FBI memo dated December 9, 1958, and it is referencing the Oklahoma FBI office, and reported that the periodical, the Saucerian Bulletin, was published by Gray Barker. The Oklahoma office went on further to note for Hoover's attention that the bulletin reported that there are three men responsible for silencing Bender, and those three were from the FBI, Air Force Intelligence, and the Central Intelligence Agency. An FBI report on December the 12th of the same year states, and I quote, Bender formed the IFSB 
in Bridgeport in 1952 to look into the flying saucer mystery. In 1953, Bender allegedly stated that he knew what the saucers are. Then three men in black suits silenced Bender to the extent that even today Bender will not discuss this matter with anyone, <laughs> even members of their office. A month later, on January 22nd, 1959, Hoover was still hot on the trail of Barker, Bender, and these three supposedly men in black. And he wrote a memorandum to one of his special agents, and it stated, and I quote, The Bureau desires to obtain a copy of the book written by Gray Barker entitled, They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. Reportedly, this book was published by University Books in Illinois. Contact this publishing house and, if possible, obtain a copy of the book. And just like most things, when Mr. Hoover asked for something, they produced it. So three weeks later, there's a copy of Barker's book on Hoover's desk. And all available copies of his Space Review magazine. So the FBI subsequently noted that its files contained no information pertaining to the hush-up of Bender. On the subject of his space review, the FBI noted, and I quote, This magazine contains numerous articles and squibs concerning the sighting of flying saucers throughout the world. It does not appear to have any security significance. This demonstrates that whoever Bender's mysterious black-garbed visitors were, they were not from the FBI. It is a highly curious note hmm. that there nowhere in the declassified papers is there any mention of the FBI's 1953 interview with Barker. Hmm. Was this just a off-the-record interview, or was this someone impersonating the FBI? Bender, like we stated, stopped in the 60s. Barker continued to write and publish up until the time of his death in 1984. So this leads to one of the theories is that the reason Hoover was interested in Bender and Barker was because this was right at the height of the Red Scare. And Hoover felt like all of this horse shit around UFOs would give the commies a way to infiltrate the country or start a war. Of course. Of course it is. It's always the commies. Red Dawn, man. It's Red Dawn. <laughs> All right, so we've touched on Barker, Bender, and Harold Dahl. And so now we get into a little tale from Harold T. Wilkins. Who that? Harold T. Wilkins, was a, he was a UFO investigator. And he states that in January 1953... That he had an anonymous source that worked at the Los Angeles Attorney's Office. And that two six and a half feet tall MIBs arrived unannounced one day and they were given prestigious positions within the company. And no one knew, except for the director of the company, who didn't say anything why these two had been hired. These two, quote, air quotes, men did not have any joints in their hands or wrists. Oh, wow. 
And this was evident one day when one of the men tried to open a door and could not open a door. Like, I don't know how to do this. And so someone had to open the door for him. Now, one of the men is reported to have unworldly strength. He was in an office and had bent over to ask a question to another man, and he put his hand on top of a filing cabinet. And then when he left, the guy that had the question asked to him stood up and looked at the, just happened to look at the top of the filing cabinet, and the guy had left his hand imprint a half an inch indentation into the top of the cabinet. Hmm. So it's at that time that man picks up the phone and contacts the FBI. <laughs> so the FBI sends two people out, and all of a sudden... You don't even call HR? You don't even call your... You, you don't even call the local... They're like, fuck this, thing. I ain't doing <laughs> I'm calling the FBI, man. This, is, fu- this guy's fucked up, man. And so he's, the guy states that he contacts the FBI, and then magically the two men in black are never seen again. Of course. One step ahead of the jailer, man. Yes, they were. Of the men in black sightings, I would say this is the third most famous. Those two that we've mentioned before. Uh, And this one, but this one's strange to me. Well, fuck, strange, really. Men in black sightings, strange? Nah. (laughs) Okay, this one is called the Soloway Firth Spaceman. And if you want to Google it, you see the very famous picture. On May 23rd, 1964, Jim Templeton from Carlisle, Cumberland, England is going to take his five-year-old daughter and his wife to a day trip to Berg Marsh. Templeton is going to state that the only people on the marsh that day were a couple of old women sitting in a car and that and him and his daughter and his wife. So he's going to take a series of pictures while he's there, three of which are going to be three pictures in a row of his daughter Elizabeth in the same pose. She's going to be kneeling, holding some flowers, giving a little half smile. But when he gets the photos developed, he is going to be shocked when the middle picture came back displaying something that looks like a spaceman in the background. Templeton insisted that he did not see the figure until the photographs were developed. Uh, they're going to send the photos to Kodak themselves to review it, and Kodak's going to return and say... Whatever is in that photograph was there. The photograph itself had not been manipulated in any way, so whatever was there was there to begin with. This is going to get some public notice. He's going to try to figure out what the hell's going on. He's going to claim it's a spaceman. And he's going to claim that not long after that he went public, two government, quote unquote government agents, I don't know why I did the air quotes with my fingers since we're on a podcast, but... <laughs> Just know they're there. Just know that I did that. I literally did that. Um, Twice. (laughs) He's going to be visited by two government agents who refer to themselves as only 9 and 10. Not Agent 9, not Agent 10, just 9 and 10. Not Agent K? Not Agent K, not Agent J. None of that. Not Agent M that Michael Jackson wanted to be. Um, When he takes them out back to the Bergmarsh, and he's explaining what happened, showing the, the everything around there and whatnot. He's going to explain to them that he personally didn't see the figure. The figure was just there in, in the, the picture, photo. in the photo, yeah. correct, according to Templeton. He said the men are going to get freaking insanely angry and just drive off, never to be seen again. 
So that would be the end of that story, except Templeton is going to be later contacted by two employees at a missile launch pad in Australia who claimed that they saw two figures that strongly resembled the man in his daughter's photo on launch pad security footage and essentially causing them to abort the mission. Is there, is it this one that there's photographic evidence of that it looks like somebody's there for in like a split frame? Or am I thinking of something else? Of the... At the Australian at, launch pad. At the launch, launch pad? I don't think so. There used to be a show called uh, Conspiracy Theories or something. Yeah, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I, uh, um, shit. Yeah, but anyway, you know what I'm talking about. But I swear they had some kind of picture from a launch pad. I think it was a recreation. Okay. They I may know have what been. you're talking yeah. about. It was like, it comes on real late at night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, unclassified or unopened or open yeah. or something. I know what you're talking about. We cut that shit out. Declassified. Declassified. Yeah, that was it. There we go. Declassified. Anywho, I think there was a recreation. Okay. If you want to try to Google it, you can, but I don't think there is anything. But they're going to claim that people, two guys looking extremely similar to the person in the photograph interrupted the launch site, interrupted the launch and caused them to abort the mission. And it turns out that... The missiles had been produced and built 20 miles away from the field where Templeton took the photo. Oh. So that's very strange, very intriguing. However, if you look on our social medias once we post it, or if you want to just look it up yourself, if you Google the Solway First Spaceman, you can tell that that is bullshit. <laughs> that is not a spaceman in that photo. I'm sorry. And you can almost tell that it had the figure has what appears to be a flowery dress on. If you look at the other pictures taken that day, you can see the picture of um, with Jim Templeton's wife kneeling beside her daughter, and you see her in a light blue flowery dress. So if you look at the photo, you can see that that is a white dress, but maybe it's overexposed. And you can tell that the right arm, I'm calling it the right arm, because the person is facing away from the daughter. So the right arm, the bend in the elbow, is clearly bending in a manner in which someone is facing away. Now, I'm saying the person in that photo is his wife. Whether or not he knew it, that's a completely different story. According to what I researched, the camera he was using only showed about 70% of the, the picture's background. So he was probably focusing on her daughter, on his daughter, didn't realize that his wife had walked into the frame, took the picture, she walked out of the frame, took another picture, biggity-bobbity-boom, we've got the Solway First Spaceman. Now, that does not... That does not mean... That he the, wasn't visited. That he was not visited by the men in black. That does not mean that at all. And it does not mean that this incident in Australia occurred or did not occur. I'm not saying all of this is bullshit. I'm saying what caused this incident is a misidentification in the background. That is 100% his wife. And I, you know me, I don't like calling hoaxes. And I don't think it's a hoax. I think it's a, mis, a mistake. Yeah. Um, but you can see. You can. I mean, look at that. You can tell that that is... Somebody in the background facing the other direction. Correct. So so now we get into the Herbert Hopkins and the David Stevens story. Ooh. Yeah. Fancy, fancy. So this occurred in 1975, and Herbert Hopkins was an allergist 
who was known for using hypnosis to cure some of his patients. And for several weeks, he was consulting on a case of alleged UFO teleportation in Oxford, Maine of a one David Stevens. And UFO teleportation is the same thing as abduction. So late one night, while Mr. Hopkins is reviewing the tape recordings of the hypno hypnotic sessions of David Stevens, he is startled by a telephone call. And so he answers it, and he hears a strange, real faint voice on the other end who tells him that he is the vice president of the New Jersey UFO Research Organization calling from a phone booth. He has heard of Hopkins' recent work and asks if he might stop by since he is in the area to discuss Hopkins' findings. Hopkins later states that for some reason he agrees to allowing this man to come over and tell, tells him his address. So Mr. Hopkins states that he hangs up the phone, walks across the living room to the front door and switches on the porch light so that when the man that had called arrives, he'll know which door to approach. But as soon as Mr. Hopkins flips the switch, he sees a man coming up the steps almost at the door. Already there. Yes, in a matter of seconds. Hopkins states that he is extremely puzzled because the closest phone booth to his house is several blocks away and he did not hear a car pull up. So he opens the door and allows the man into his home. Dr. Hopkins stated that before he even knew what was happening, he had let the man in and realized that the man was dressed in an apparent new suit that, were, that was perfectly pressed. He had on a black suit coat, tie and shoes, and a starched white shirt. He also wore gray leather gloves. And on the top of his head was a black hat, which, when the man removed, revealed that he was perfectly, smoothly bald. Dr. Hopkins realized before he had even spoken a word to the man that he was totally hairless. No head on his head or no hair on his head, no eyebrows, no eyelashes, nothing. He could tell that the man's skin was extremely pale to the point of being nearly white. The only hint of any type of color about this strange man was he had extremely deep red lips. And Hopkins stated that he swore the man was wearing lipstick. He said that the man's nose seemed too small for his face, and his ears were extremely small as well, appearing to be lower on his head than they should have been. Hopkins invites the man into the living room. They sat opposite each other, and the stranger begins to ask about the hypnotism sessions. Hopkins says that he answered all of the man's questions, even though the strangeness was weighing on his mind. He was thinking, who the hell is this man? He seemed to know things about the case that only someone intimately involved would know. And why was he asking questions if he already knew the answers to them? With every an answer that Hopkins gave... 
the man would repeat the exact same phrase. Yes, that's the way I understand it. <laughs> and then it occurred to him that he did not know the man's name. And things immediately began to go awry because Dr. Hopkins found himself in the presence of something else or something other. It is at this moment that the man mistakenly brushed his lips with his gray gloves and a portion of his lips smeared off. Mm. And he, you know, constantly Hopkins stated that he would wipe his mouth and touch his lips and basically wiped off all of the lipstick. And it revealed that the man didn't have any lips at all, just a hole in his face. Then he pointed to Dr. Hopkins' pocket and told Hopkins that he had two coins in it. This seemingly random observation was true, Hopkins stated, but he did not have an idea how the man would have known this. Lucky guess. So the stranger requested that Hopkins remove one of the coins and hold it in the palm of his hand. Hopkins complied, and the stranger said, watch the coin. And as Hopkins watched it, his vision began to grow fuzzy and then to waver. And then the coin began to change color. And then all of a sudden, it simply vanished. The man then said that no one on this plane would ever see that coin again. Such an odd way to phrase it. Yes. Uh, just to me. And then the man says, Do you know what happened to Barney Hill? And sidebar... For those of you that don't know who Barney Hill is, he is the man, the husband of Betty Hill, and Betty and Barney Hill... Pretty much the most famous abduction case. Yes. Um, there was a book written back in the 60s and 70s, or 60s or 70s, called Incident at Exodor, and that is where they were um, abducted, and that may be a case that we actually dive into later. Nah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But <laughs> maybe it is it's one of like fascinating. Coach said one of the most famous abduction cases. I believe it is the most famous. I know there's the the Travis Walton Walton the fire in the sky that they made a terrifying fucking movie about. But I would say that this one is more more famous. Yeah. And God. so the strange. Have you seen back. Fire in the Sky? That fucking scene? Yeah. No, thank you. No. I do not want to be abducted by aliens. Mm -mm. If that's really what happens. Mm -mm. So going back to the stranger and Mr. Hopkins, the good doctor stated that the man asked him, do you know what happened to Barney Hill? Hopkins said, no, I don't, except that he has passed away. The stranger asked, do you know what he died from? Hopkins says he doesn't know, and he just states, a heart attack maybe? And the man says, no, that's not entirely accurate. He died because he knew too much. Then the man got up very so slowly and awkwardly and began moving towards the door. With slurred speech, he tells Hopkins, my energy is running low, must go now, goodbye. And with that, he left Hopkins wondering who he had met and what just had happened. So Hopkins rushes to the door to watch the man depart, but all he saw was a very bright blue light in the the driveway of his home and then the man's gone and the next morning there is a mark on his driveway and it's not from a car turning around it's in the dead center of his driveway mm -hmm. so Hopkins 
is left questioning, did he just get threatened? Was the man telling him about Barney Hill meant to stop him from doing research on his hypnosis case? It sure sounds like it. He made, he made a damn coin disappear. Yeah. You make a damn coin disappear, like, dematerialize, not like a magician, like, poof, like, sleight of hand shit. Like, you watch it de- dematerialize. Yeah, I'm going to stop <laughs> whatever the fuck it is I'm doing. So, as time passes, and I'm saying with time as in within a couple of days, Dr. Hopkins is freaked out. And basically, he states that if it had been simply another human telling him to stop, he would have been like, yeah, piss off. But because of the high strangeness of how the man behaved, how he appeared, and there was no doubt that he was going to do what the man asked him. So he erased all of the hypnotic tapes and stopped working on the abduction case. So if the the main goal of these MIBs are to threaten and scare people, they're doing a good job of it. Because I'm scared that we're... <laughs> I'm already scared just by covering this case that we're going to fucking have an encounter. Well, Hopkins discovered later that, of course, there's no such thing as the New Jersey UFO Research Organization. Mm. Duped again. Yeah. So, the Herbert Hopkins case remains to be one of the most detailed reports of an interaction with a man in black. And, it is one of the more ominous cases so our next one is a man named Paul Miller. Paul Miller is going to be returning home from a hunting trip when he saw a luminous disc in the sky. The disc landed in an empty field and two humanoids emerged from the craft. Miller, being the most intelligent person I've ever heard of, decided just to fire his gun at him. <laughs> yeah, hell with it. Let's just shoot at the aliens. <laughs> Do not point your weapons directly at the nuclear objects. <laughs> um... He believed he injured one. And Some things in here don't react too well to bullets. Yeah, because they fled down the rural road uh, when he fled down a rural road in his car. However, as he was fleeing, he realized he had lost time. It had been almost three hours later than when he first encountered the craft. He shrugged it off and went back to his Air Force job the next day. And upon entering work, he was immediately confronted by three men in dark suits. They told him that they, quote, had his file, end quote. Despite having told nobody about the event, the men said that they knew all about it, and they mentioned that the encounter would best be forgotten. Paul stated, and I quote, They seemed to know everything about me, where I worked, my name, everything else. They also asked questions about his experience as if they knew, they already knew the answers. Miller, who was visibly terrible, obviously terrified by this, did not come forward about his experience until many, many, many years later. Oh, shit. Which is a, yeah, that's a definite theme that people that come forward about this stuff do it years years later when they figure enough time has passed by that they can get away with it and not have to worry about... You don't see many people defying... I don't think you see anybody defying these requests. So you need to shut your fucking mouth. They shut up. Mm-hmm. They don't talk. They let years and years and years go by before they even have the guts to say anything. Probably by the time that they're like, screw it, I'm almost dead anyway. What are you going to do? you going to kill an old man? Probably. 
Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's get into some of the more famous cases. The most famous? We just covered the most famous three. The, that's the first three we covered. Mothman. 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 So, in the Mothman story, it is noted by John Keel. I don't think Andrew Cole was an alien. No. Um, but we'll do that later. But John Keel states Are that... Are we not talking about Andrew Cole? Mm-mm. Oh, my bad. <laughs> I think he was ultra-terrestrial. We'll get into that later. Yeah. John Keel states that there were a ton of MIB sightings. And it's not necessarily that they were going specifically to people, but people would see these men in black going through their mail. They would see them, you know, acting like they were working for the local town, the street department, but they stood out like sore thumbs. And if you want to research that, please, you know, look through the Mothman. And it is highly detailed. But one of the more famous ones is of... Miss Mary Hire, and she worked for the Athens, West Virginia newspaper named The Messenger, and she was tasked with covering Point Pleasant. And she states in January of 67, she was visited by a man in black, or a man in black. But this one is different from the ones that we've covered so far. He was less than five feet tall, hmm. and his hair was cut in a bowl style. She stated he had hypnotic eyes and a str- and strange thick soles on his shoes. And the more you look into the men in black, there's a lot of reports out there that they do have these weird-looking thick-soled shoes. She stated that this man was mesmerized by her ballpoint pen. And so she told him that he could have the pen, and he let out this strange, cackling, high-pitched laugh and ran out of her office. Yeah. <laughs> Offerable. I wish there was anything on this planet that made me that happy. Yeah. She then stated that later in 1967, two Asian-appearing MIBs looking identical came to the newspaper's office talking about all of the UFO sightings in the area. When she agreed with one of them, he began to ask her a lot of questions. And one of them was, has anyone asked you to not publish the details of these sightings? She answered by saying, no, no one has asked me that. The man then asked her, what would you do, or what would your response be if someone did warn you not to print the sightings? She stated, and I quote, I tell them to go to hell. <laughs> I like Mary Hire. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's some balls right there, boy. She stated that she just looked down to her desk that she was already working on something when he was asking the questions, and so he, she said that when she looked back up, they were gone. So if you so if you stand up to them, they disappear? I, I don't know. Well, and I don't have the specifics on this, but supposedly, I think it was in around this time and dealing with Mary that another MIB was seen at a party asking and by a party like a cookout party and he was going around with a tape recorder and keep in mind this is in late 60s so it's the big tape recorder with a big wire mic coming out of it asking questions 
but the guy couldn't figure out how to start the recorder. So he's just running around with this tape recorder that's not working, sticking this mic in people's faces. Do you know John Keel? Do you know Mary Hire? Has anyone ever told Mary Hire to stop writing articles? Said it was real odd, and then he just vanished. It vanished how? Just like right in front of their faces? No, no, no. Or like they they just... turn around and look, and oh, he's gone. Okay, like Batman vanished. Yeah. Not like... Not like dematerialized. Yeah, vanished. like, okay. He's just gone. That's weird. Yeah. Tell him, God, tell him, God, tell him, God, tell him, go to hell. (laughs) Now, there is the, one of the more famous photographs of a man in black, and this is from Timothy Green Beckley, and he stated that a man named Jack Robertson, who just happened to be the secretary for the National UFO Conference, told him that his wife... Mary Robertson had seen a man in black for four straight days standing in a doorway of a building next to their apartment. Jack yeah. stated... Yeah, and we'll post this picture yeah. on our social media because it's it, it, you have to see it. Jack stated that odd clicking noise could be heard on their telephone line. He also stated that just like Bender in his UFO files, Jack's UFO files had been gone through when he and Mary were out of the apartment. Mary became extremely terrified and would phone Jack stating that the man was back. So Jack and one of his friends decide to drive by and take a picture of this man. And like Coach said, this is one of the more famous pictures of a man in black. And it's on a little street where everybody's parked on the side of the street and he's just seen looking out towards their apartment building. He's just chilling. Yeah. Now, another one dealing with the National UFO Conference. This one happened in 1969 on June 24th weekend. And this is when the conference was held in Charleston, West Virginia. And Alan Greenfield stated that he spotted a man in black hovering around the convention. And that the man had on an or wore an odd pair of dark glasses that like clip-on sunglasses. And he said that... Is this the one where the guy was wearing a brown hat? He said he was in training? Yes. Yeah. He said that he and a group of friends decide to go to lunch. And so this guy starts coming around their table. And it looked like he was held together very loosely, is what Greenfield stated. said the man had very pale, putty-like skin, moved real stiff, had a mechanical-sounding voice, and he thought someone was just messing around... I think that, too. I think this one's kind of horseshit. Yeah. I, not on the part of the person reporting it, on the guy that said he was in training. Yeah. I think he was just being a douchebag. So Greenfield said that he had finally just had enough of it, and he jumps up, and he asked the guy, why are you following us around? What's your deal? And the man turned real stiffly and walked to the door. So Greenfield said, I wasn't going to let him go, and he followed him, and he ran in front of the man and asked, who are you? The man said, I am a... MIB in training. So Greenfield said, you won't mind then if I just take a photo, and he pulled out a camera and snapped a photo of the man, and we'll put this on our social media too. He said the man just kind of stood there for a second, stunned. He said at that time, he, Greenfield, turned around and looked, and he said it was the street was eerily empty, and the, he noticed the man started walking away. And the man rounded the corner, so Greenfield pursued him to see where he was going, and when he rounded the corner, there was no one there. 
All I know is if you're men in black in training and you're telling people you're men in black in training, if I'm in charge, if I'm your supervisor, you're fine. You're fired. <laughs> you can't be a secret squirrel if you tell people you're a secret yeah, squirrel. Yeah, exactly. Like, you're fired. Yeah. <laughs> so, let's get to the Pat Hyde incident. Which one is that? This one is crazy to say the least i'm not so sure that i believe that this was a true mib and i'll get into why after we tell this story but basically patricia hyde stated that she didn't really this was in july of 1972 she didn't really think about ufos you know sure she had seen some pictures and stuff like that but you know it wasn't one of the, wasn't a thing that she really researched or paid a lot of attention to. Mm-hmm. So she said it was around nine and nine p.m. and that she was in the front seat of her car attending an outdoor movie with her mother in Arcadia, Florida, when something unusual attracted her curiosity. She said that she looked up and it was kind of like an ordinary star in the sky, but as she watched it, it began to move across from north to south over the giant movie screen and then she realizes that this is not a star and a bright yellowish light began to fall towards earth in like a slow falling leaf motion Hmm. she states that when the object got directly over the car I could see I couldn't see it anymore so I got out of the parked car strained my neck looking upward interesting if knowing if it was still visible at this point, I saw a white light, a ray shooting out from beneath the object. The best I can describe it is to say it closely resembled a searchlight beacon in that it scanned the ground near where I stood before eventually landing directly upon me. She states that she was understandably frightened when the beam came upon her. And looking up directly into the blinding light, she states that she almost could make out like a bat-like shape. But when the light stayed on her for a couple of seconds, she stated that she got the sensation of a feeling of warmth and peace. Then when the light moved off, she said that her mom was freaking out. And people were yelling and screaming, and nobody knows, is it a a helicopter, is what it is. And then all of a sudden, this little searchlight flickers out, and nobody sees anything. She has nightmares, her mom has nightmares, and so she starts asking questions. And so she started gathering some data, and that's when she says that there was an elderly man who had been sitting on his front porch and when he looked up in the early afternoon sky and saw what he initially thought was a jet he watched the object travel across the sky and stopped and moved closer and closer and came within a couple of feet of the ground and he told her he was extremely frightened as well so she starts kind of seeking out people that have had these strange experiences And then she said one day that she met this man on the street in front of her house. He said he wanted to talk to her and that he was a reporter. And he knew exactly what had happened and was quite interested in UFOs himself. And immediately he started talking about all these strange things, UFO propulsion 
And then he said that he could teach me how to build a UFO and invited me to his house for a demonstration. What? Yeah, this is a new pickup line. <laughs> so she, Patricia says that he, she thought he was, you know, a goofball and got a real eerie feeling about him. And so she kind of hands off kind of thing, wouldn't shake his hands. And then basically got extremely, extremely scared and was not sure how she, the man had actually found her. Um, he claims that he had run into her mother at the supermarket and she, her mom, supposedly knew this man's wife and that when they started talking about flying saucers, her mom said that that's how he became interested. But he went so far as to indicate that maybe Pat should stop talking about what had transpired at the drive-in. And she got the feeling from him that she should keep her mouth shut from now on. And the man would visit her several times, and she states that she was, and I quote, I was in the backyard when I was, when I saw this car driving by. I noticed it was a black car, and it slowed down as it passed by the house. The car had tinted windows, and so I couldn't see inside. The car went around the corner, and I returned to working in the garden. When I heard the sound of a car engine being gunned as it came around the block, it was the same car, and this time it came to a complete stop at the curb, and I could see several faces peering out of the, out from behind the darkened glass windows. Hmm. Staring transfixed, her gaze was broken by the sound of the phone ringing. And so when she ran to answer the phone to get indoors, she felt an evil sense of coming from the car lifting the receiver she states she heard a voice of a strange man the same man that had came to her what are you trying to do to me why did you send those men out to run me off the road after calming the man down Patricia states that she explained to him she didn't do any of the sort and that he had been run off the road by this big black car and it almost killed him. Yeah. So we got an actual attack, though. Yes. This is the first. We're one of the first incidences of this being reported. Right. So this was not the worst thing to happen to young Patricia. Oh, wow. She states that I was walking on the street going back to my apartment one night when this man came up and grabbed my purse. I kind of thought, well, he's going to rob me. He just stood still, dumped the entire contents of my purse upside down, and when I asked him what he was doing, he said, it was none of my damn business. <laughs> but that's yeah, my purse. That's my purse. I don't know you. He searched through everything, <laughs> throwing her wallet to one side. She states, I knew then he wasn't looking for money, but what was he looking for? Eventually, he came across my notebook that contained notes on the UFO sightings. Hmm. He ripped... None of my damn business. But, oh, but. <laughs> yeah. He ripped the pad into many pieces, and when she started to protest, this man identified himself as a police officer. I asked him to show me some identification as I stepped forward to defend my rights as an American citizen. He pushed me aside and then backward. As I made a move towards him, I felt someone else grabbing me from behind, and two men took hold of me. With her hands held tightly behind her back, Patricia was unable to take any action with her hands held tightly behind her back patricia was unable to take defensive actions against what she thought were muggers 
I was turned around and pushed towards a van at the side of the road with both the front and side doors open. I began to fight with all my might as I realized they planned to abduct me. I knew they weren't police officers and they were dressed in dark clothing and none of them said anything to me except the first individual who had stated that it was none of my damn business. Dragged into the van, she was handcuffed, driven around the city for a while with the doors shut tight and the windows of the van blackened over. It was impossible for her to figure out where they were taking her. The next thing I knew, Patricia states, it was like seven hours later. I don't know what happened during that time. Frankly, I know we didn't drive around more than 15 minutes, but when we arrived at our final destination, the clock on the wall said 5 a.m., though it should have been around 9 p.m. She states that she was dragged down a hallway and two other men told her that she was in a hospital because she tried to commit suicide by jumping out of the window at the FBI building. This I knew was a bald-faced lie because I hadn't been working there for several weeks and I had never thought about committing suicide in my entire life. And to note, she is now a typist for the FBI. Hmm. They took her to the elevator and they came out to an underground passage, said that her voice echoed in the hallway and there were trap doors in the ceiling and they took her to a room told her to drink something and they almost broke her neck trying to force this liquid down her throat they threw me in a tiny room after this and untied my hands which had been bound from the time they had put me in the back of the van they wanted me to sign a piece of paper and when I refused they left me alone and didn't come back till the next day. Pat woke up the next morning feeling like she had been drugged. There was a small window near the ceiling which was barred and there was a plant growing up by the window so I couldn't see out to the ground. I went toward the door and it opened when I took hold of the doorknob. So I wasn't locked in. I walked out and there was a man standing in the hallway. I asked him who he was and he said it didn't really matter and he chuckled and said I was in a psychiatric ward. He explained that my doctor had me committed for trying to commit suicide the night before. I told him I didn't have a doctor, and I was perfectly well, and I wanted to go home. Which is exactly what somebody that was committed to a psychiatric ward would say, though. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Then she said that the head doctor came to her, and he was of German descent and had a German accent. And they told her that she tried to jump out of the fifth story of the FBI building. Hmm. And then they tell her that she can go home, but she has to promise not to do any more UFO research. And so she promises not to, calls her mother, and her mother flies to Washington, picks her up, and they went to the police station and tried to file a report but they thought she was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. So again, what kind of crazy shit is this? Was it MIBs? Was it government officials? Well, it doesn't it doesn't fit the typical MO of the MIBs. Like this is the first this is the only report of its type of its type. Yeah, exactly. Now, some people attribute this to Thomas Townsend Brown, and he was the founder of NICAP. And NICAP was like MUFON, but they're a little more militant. Mm. And they have a history of strong-arming UFO witnesses 
trying to get them to not talk to anyone else about their UFO story so that NICAP, NICAP has exclusive rights to it. Well, that's not cool. No. So, yeah, they're, NICAP's kind of like the bully on the schoolyard. Shame on y'all, NICAP. Peckerheads. Dang. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, man. I don't see that. You think NICAP's going to abduct a person, hold them in a psychiatric ward, blah, 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 blah? Not if she works for the fucking FBI. I would. Well, that's what I'm saying. I don't know, man. I don't know what to make of that story. That one's so odd. There's, there's so many things that you could do to try to research that one. And I'll post a link to that story, and it's actually a PDF file of an old UFO magazine. So, hmm. So now... Well, hold on. Let's, let's talk about... Um... Professor Peter Rojweiskais. Okay, so another one is uh, Professor Peter R-O-J-C-E-W-I-C-Z. Rojweiskais. That's what we're going with. That's what we're going with. We're going to call him Professor Peter. Um, <laughs> well, he claims that he was reading a UFO book in a library in 1987... He's at his university library, immersed in the UFO literature, and a thin, dark-featured man, he claimed, uh, essentially appeared. He said he didn't, it was like he dropped out of the ceiling. Damn. He said, because, well, he's just basically insinuating that he snuck up on him. Yeah. You know, he didn't see him approach, he didn't hear him approach, he was just sitting there and all of a sudden the man was there. And the man started questioning him about what he was doing. And he was like, I'm, you know, I'm reading this UFO book. And the the man asked him if he was interested, if he was interested in UFOs. And Professor Peter was like, Nah, I'm just reading it. It's not really a big particular interest for me. Um. And at that point, the man in black got extremely agitated with him. So he stood up, as if lifted, mechanically lifted. And shouted, flying saucers are the most important fact of the century, and you're not interested? And so, and then, after he stood up, after he yelled, he spoke very gently to him and told him to go well in your purpose and departed. <laughs> go well in your purpose. Yes, go well in your purpose and left. That's the way I'm going to close all my conversations <laughs> now. When the man left, professors, Professor Peter's going to get up and try to follow him can't find the man but he notices that the the library that was once crowded is pretty much deserted so he's the only person left in the in the library the hell yeah and he says he's convinced that the men in black confronted him about his about the ufo book he doesn't understand why he just know that knows that it happened he didn't re reveal this until many years later and when finally he gave a lecture on the subject and when he's he's also trying to find people that had similar encounters. So this one, there is no UFO sight. There is no spaceman. In quote, it's quote unquote spaceman. There's just a there's just a dude chilling, reading a book, and a man in black's gonna encounter him. That seems very strange. Yeah. So there was another story that I had seen or seen. I had heard on another podcast about the men in black, and it stated that a lady was told to go to a library and search out a specific book and in that book she would find something i can't remember what it was anyway she walks in the library and she notices that the library is empty except for the librarian and she states that the librarian was a female in black not male oh. and the book that she was told to look for was laying on the counter 
and she asked about it. And when she opened the book, there was a note that said, turn to some page. And so when she did, all the letters shrunk to where she couldn't see it. And then they, all of a sudden they grew back some weird ass story. Hmm. And then the lady looked at her and said, did you find what you was looking for? And she was freaked the fuck out. And she didn't say a word and turned around and walked out. Yeah, buddy, I would too. Yeah, that was an odd, odd story. Now, one of the more famous Men in Black situations happens to deal with Mr. Dan Aykroyd. Which, if you don't, I mean, everybody knows who Dan Aykroyd is, but if you don't know, he is also extremely interested in the paranormal. He's extremely interested in UFOs. He's extremely interested in all these type of things. From his youth, his parents were involved in it. And, and he's had two confirmed sightings himself. Mm-hmm. Well, he's going to have a television show that he was producing with the Sci-Fi Channel. Called Out There? Yeah, Out There. And, um, well, he's going to have an encounter, and I guess it's best if we just let the man speak for himself. So please, just listen to Mr. Ackroyd. I was outside, and Britney Spears called me because she wanted to, me to appear on Saturday Night Live with her. And so I picked up, I was outside having a cigarette, the phone rang... Uh, I, I, oh, Brittany, how you doing? Oh, sure, of course I will. I turned away like this. I turned back, and there was a black Ford across the road, a black Ford sedan. And I, I was trying to look at the plate, and the plate seemed kind of like fuzzy, and I was, you know, definitely a police car. And two guys were there, and a big, big, tall guy got out of the back seat, and he stood in the street on, um, on 42nd Street, it was. We, we were at 42nd Street and 8th Avenue, and he looked right at me. And literally, I mean, I was on the phone. Hey, oh, sure, of course I'd love for the show. Saw the Ford, went back like this, turned back like a half second later, and it was gone. And that car did not go past me. It did not make a U-turn because I would have seen 42nd Street. I would have seen that thing take a U-turn and go away. That car vanished. That car was a cloaked vehicle of some type. And whether this was like a warning to me because the guy cut out of the backseat gave me a real dirty look. That car vanished. I know what I saw. And, uh, you know, I, I, it, was, it was just this fast. It was, oh, hi, Brittany, sure. Oh, of course, I'd love to do God gives me a dirty look. Oh, well, sure, car gone. That's what happened. And uh, then two hours later, uh, we were told we were not to continue taping, and the show was canceled, and none of them would air. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Was that, uh, was that an MIB experience? You know, black helicopters, uh, you know, military... Uh, abductions that happen sometimes people are taken and they talk about then being visited by you know military personnel and debriefed about their abduction was it you know was it a technology associated with some of these beings that are visiting that wanted to warn me off or that wanted to give me verification that i was on the right track i don't know but i do know i i did i did turn back a second later and i you know it takes so long for an automobile accelerating from zero to 40 miles an hour to reach the corner of 8th Avenue and 42nd Street going past me and then pulling a U-turn and going out towards Times Square, I would have seen that car. And I looked around. I mean, I was looking for that, and it was gone. So imagine having a Men in Black sighting while you're on the phone with Britney Spears. <laughs> yeah. That's, a, that's some crazy shit right there. And then he walks back in, and his show's canceled. Yeah, they're done. Like, never to be aired. It's never aired. Not once. And they finished wrapping the entire season. Yeah. They, they said, pack your shit and go. See you, buddy. It's over. There's another uh, YouTube video that is just him sitting in a chair, smoking cigarettes and drinking probably whiskey. And he talks about every crazy oh, oh, thing. Oh, that's a disc- Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's like un- 
I can't, Dan Aykroyd uncensored on UFOs. Yeah. It's like two hours long. Yeah, it's great. If you're interested in UFOs and crazy stuff like this, he he does a great, great job. That's what this it. is from. He's also on Joe Rogan's podcast recounting this uh, oh, story. Wow. He's uh, plugging his vodka. Oh, yeah. He's a crystal skull vodka yeah. or something like that. So go check, go try that out. Unofficial sponsor of this episode. Yeah, Dan Aykroyd. <laughs> loves our show. <laughs> All right, and the last two we're going to talk about actually have some proof, video proof. Well, one of the videos has not been released, but the pictures have. Um, and this one, as I've mentioned on a, a podcast before... I was close to this. I was at this location like a week before this incident happened. And it was in New Orleans, Louisiana at the Bienville Street um, uh, trolley stop. And this gentleman who um, goes by the alias Jack Smith alleged that he had an MIB encounter in Niagara Falls, New York in 2009. And then as well as uh, April 13th, 2014 in New Orleans. Okay, he said, Jack, like many confessed victims of the MIB phenomenon, claims to have been followed by pairs of identical-looking men dressed in matching black suits and exhibiting odd appearances and behaviors. And The bizarre encounters have occurred throughout his life since he had a harrowing experience with the quote-unquote greys as a young boy and later as a teenager. Now in his 50s, Jack is still haunted by the experience and subsequent run-ins with the MIB near where he lives and and where he has lived and where he has traveled throughout the world. In 2014, his bizarre encounters came to a head in April when he he and a close friend were watched by two MIBs in broad daylight in the New Orleans French Quarter. Jack was able to take a video of the MIBs as they stared at him and his friend, and as his fear continues to this day about their menacing behavior, both Jack and his friend, who were deeply shaken by their encounter, refused to release the footage for fear of what would happen to them. Once the trolley arrived, they stepped. He and his friend stepped on. The two men in black did not. Rather, rather than get on the trolley, they crossed the street and got into a black vehicle. So, we will post. The reason why we're talking about that is because he has two stills from this um, encounter that we will post on our social media so you can get a good look at these guys. But lastly, we're going to talk about the video. And this is probably the most famous, most recent incident of the Men in Black. And this occurred, the video is from the hotel lobby. Mm -hmm. Surveillance video. Yes. And this story, hell, we could do a episode just on this story. Yeah, we probably could. but... But it is extremely odd. And... The way I remember it, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that one of the, he was either a manager or a front desk clerk, had a UFO encounter. And he had not really told anybody, and he had a day off. And these two weird, I mean, they're prototypical MIBs, walk in. And yeah, this you, is going to be in 2009 at the Sheridan Hotel on the banks of Niagara Falls, New York. Um, a surveillance video of two alleged MIBs entered the Sheridan Hotel on the Canadian side was posted on YouTube according to an investigation conducted by the Aerial Phenomenon Investigations Team, a Washington, D.C. area-based UFO research organization. 
The alleged Jim Bob Bees entered the hotel May 15, 2009 and asked to see the general manager, who, with a fellow employee working security for the hotel, had witnessed a triangle-shaped UFO fly slowly and silently over the hotel seven months earlier on the night of October 14, 2018. Oh, wow. Yeah, and there's actually, in one of the videos on YouTube, they actually have a phone interview with one of the guys, and it stated, he stated that they were asking about him, and when they told him that he wasn't working, they kind of, it kind of fried their whole thing, and they just kind of stood around asking weird questions, and so he calls him and says, look, man, there's two guys here asking about you, and they're wanting to know about your UFO sighting. I told them that you weren't working, da-da-da-da-da, and they just kind of meander around, kind of lost, like, this does not compute. And so this is probably, if you search images for MIBs, this is probably one of the first ones to come up since it's so new. Yeah, and we'll post it on our Facebook, and our, um, definitely our Facebook for sure. I don't know about Instagram. I don't think they let you post videos. No bastards <laughs> all right so those are some of the cases that we feel like we wanted to highlight there are other podcasts out there our boys at necronomapod did one the uh last podcast on the left did a three-part uh podcast on the men in black and they touch on some of the same things we did and then they go into some other things so let's get into some theories out there. One of the theories is that the MIBs are time cops. Time cops? Yes. Okay. And this theory states that people are witnessing things that they shouldn't have, and so they're coming back to try and stifle these accounts from being public knowledge, and that they're trying to basically alter history by squashing these. It's a weird theory, and I yeah, suggest but, but you go would, back. Why would that be if in the case of when people... Then why would it mostly be after UFO sightings? Why would it not be... All strangeness? All strange, yeah. yeah. Like, it's an odd theory, and it, it takes a lot to to really try and grasp what they're trying to say, but... I suggest if you're interested in the time cop theory, you know, do a little bit of... Rent the Jean-Claude Van Damme Yeah, and he just comes out and kicks everybody's ass because they've been seeing stuff they're not supposed to. <laughs> no. But it's, it's hard to find because if you type in time cop, that's what you're going to get. You're going to get the move. So if you are interested in it, you're going to have to do a little bit of digging because when you type in time cop theory, Jean-Claude Van Damme's movie comes out. So it's, you know, deep in the old uh, Google machine. So another theory is that the MIBs are a direct result of a tulpa. And some of you may be going, what the hell is Arlo talking about? I know I am. Well, a tulpa is an entity that is created in the mind, acting independently of and parallel to your own consciousness. They are able to think, have their own free will, emotions, and memory. In short, a tulpa is like a sentient person living in your head separate from you. It's currently unproven whether or not tulpas are truly sentient, but in the community, they are treated as such. It takes time for a tulpa to be developed because of its complex personality. 
as they grow older, your attention and their life experiences will shape them into a person with their own hopes, dreams, and beliefs. And basically, you'll create a tulpa by imagining a person in your head, treating them as a person. The exact mechanism is unknown, but as you give a tulpa attention and believe it can be a sentient person, it will grow into one and act independently of you. At first, you will be narrating to your tulpa, speaking to it and visualizing it in your head. And with time, you'll be able to communicate through various methods, which will be described in sections. Keep in mind that when a tulpa starts talking, it doesn't mean that they are complete or finished by any means. Like any person, a tulpa is never, quote, done. And you shouldn't be going for a finished tulpa when you make one. You should be focused on nurturing and teaching your tulpa and allowing them to grow as a person with you, while at the same time, you learn about yourself and grow as a person in turn. It takes time and effort to make a tulpa into a self-sufficient and balanced individual, and their independence and personality will grow and flourish over time, like any regular human beings. Creating a tulpa means committing to raising and living with another person, and this is a lifelong commitment, not one that ends when your tulpa starts speaking. Pretty much every tulpa has a form, an imaginary body they identify with. This form can be anything from a regular human being to a cartoon character, an animal, or anything else you can imagine. Of course, regardless of their form, they still have a human mind. You can interact with your tulpa's form by visualizing it in your mind. Most people do this as an imaginary setting called Wonderland, which is persistent, which is a persistent place you imagine yourself and your tulpa being in. Basically, tulpas tend to spend time alone in this place, but not required to have a Wonderland. Note that the form doesn't have to be a visual image. The word is often used as an umbrella term for a tulpa's looks, their voice, their, sm their smell, the feeling of their skin, everything that you can sense of their imaginary form. If you commit to the process and put a significant amount of time and effort into your tulpa, you will end up with a friend for life. You will have a big hand in shaping your tulpa's personality. Getting to know your tulpa will teach you lessons in empathy and give you insight into your own personality and thoughts. And this comes from tulpa.com. So uh, basically, the men in black, this is what? the theory. Yeah, this is what the theory. What in the absolute <laughs> Sam hell are you talking about? Basically, we, you, Albert Bender could you have created you? a tulpa. You... But, I... <clears throat> so he created a tulpa that threatened his life. What in the fuck are you talking about? This is a huge theory out there that the, Albert Bender. Whose theory? It's a lot of them. I know you hadn't seen it there, Who Coach. Who sold you this blind bill of goods, man? Basically, Albert Bender yeah. created the first Men in Black, mm. even though we just said that that was not the case. You know, we, we, we already talked about right. Men in Black that happened in 1947. And that the Men so, in Black grow. Next. The men in black grow from people talking about them, grow from Wait. encounters, and they are actually sentient beings created by the mind of Albert Bender. I didn't say it was my theory. I just said it was a theory. So all men in black come out of Albert Bender's mind? Came from Albert Bender's mind. 
All of them. That's what the theory states. I know that we're like we're supposed to buy it, like we're supposed to have an open mind and like. Oh, I call bullshit on it too, but I'm just saying this is a theory. That's the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> now, going along these lines, you can chase the rabbit through Aleister Crowley and the Black Lodge. So no, we're not going to do that. I know, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> we're not doing it because we don't have time. But you can. No, that's not why we're not going to do it. <laughs> But I'm just saying, you say you can create a tulpa by talking about it. We're fucking talking about it. So you're saying that if we get visited by men in black, it's because it's, it's because we thought of, of it. Mind. Well, what if I try to fucking visualize a, a million made, dollars made out of a billion fucking dollars? I'm with you. I'm just saying that's a theory. I didn't say it was my theory. Don't get all pissy. No, you done pissed me <laughs> off because we're talking about aliens and shit, and then you took it. You fucking. I didn't take it nowhere. This is a theory. There's a, such a hard left that it's pretty much a 180, man. Now we're in... Now we're in cuckoo land. Well, we are, we're in cuckoo. I mean, we're talking about fucking... We always hang out in cuckoo land. We're talking about aliens All disguising right. themselves with lipstick. And a hole in their head and low ears. No hair. And then you had to make it weird. Uh, yeah, I just... I'm the one that took it to the weird. <laughs> you had to... Now, another theory is that this was all in Albert's mind because he was, I know, we got uh, he was suffering from Jacksonian epilepsy. Who the, f okay, f first of all, this is a nice, that's an isolated incident. I agree with you. Then why are why, you attacking why, me? Because why, why are we stating this as theories? Because this is a theory. But that doesn't explain the hundreds of other sides. I agree with you. Well, then why are we focusing on that one dude? Because he is supposedly the father of Men in Black, even though we, we just stated that that was not the case. Well, if we've stated it and we proved it, then, then fucking... Why I'm enjoying we, myself way too much in this situation. I'm just saying. All right, so this Jacksonian why? epilepsy thing oh, states that Albert suffered from this, and this would lead credence to so, him smelling the sulfur. sulfur. Okay. And that it would also lead to people that suffer from this from having ophalic, auditory, and visual hallucinations. I don't buy that one either, but again, that is because if it was just Albert Bender, if we went with the Tulpa thing, then once he decided not to feed the Tulpa, it wouldn't have it would have ceased to exist. So now it's a fucking gremlin, like you can't feed Basically, it after midnight. Basically, and you better not put it in water. So, those are the two weird-ass theories out there. What I believe is they are... I don't think they're a government entity. So, Dan Aykroyd witnessed a fucking car, Tulpa, that disappeared that was made out of Albert Bender's mind. Is that what you're trying to tell me? No, I'm just telling you what the theory states. Where did you find this? It's all over the place. It's where? It's on that Google machine. Go ahead and say it. Tell me it's on Reddit. Mm-mm. To be honest with you, you can't find shit on Reddit about new Men in Black stories. All you get is like not safe for work things that I don't want to click on. I'm pretty sure it's not Men in Black that they're talking about. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, so I don't believe they are a government entity. I think that they really are otherworldly. Or, we'll go one further, other dimensionally, especially going back to the coin trick. 
Because I'm going to tell you something. If some pasty white tall sum of gun comes down here and dematerializes a coin that I had in my pocket, I ain't talking to it. I ain't even telling you. No. Not at all. Well, what if it is... Um, what if they're working in conjunction with the government? That might be a possibility. I mean... But... As much as I know about the vastness of space from my limited studies on it in college, I know, I believe 100% that there's life on other planets. Yeah. 100% believe that. I just don't know if they're coming here. It's the Drake equation. I would, yeah, exactly. But I would I would be more inclined to believe that they are uh, other dimensions, uh, other dimensional beings rather than space aliens. Ultra terrestrials, as they're yeah. called, I would believe that. I find that a little more believable than space aliens, even though I, I believe in both. You know, but I just don't know why. How would they find us? How, I believe how that they, they tra- dimensionally like, travel, not yeah. That's what I'm at saying. At the speed of light, travel. Yeah, man. I mean, basically, what I'm trying to say is why on why do we think we're so fucking important? That other beings from other planets are coming to visit us. It's human nature. Why man. the hell would they bother? We think we are the begin all and end all. I know, but we're not. No, I agree we, with you. But it's the flaw of our being. Yeah, we we're, we're so self important that we're now in a fucking quarantine. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah, um, so what's your? You know, I mean, we've kind we of touched to, we used on to it. To be the uh, center of the universe. Well, we yeah, are still. It's the flat Earth, man. The sun, fucking can't get to the edge the, of the Earth. The, the fucking ice walls there. Rotate around us because we were so fucking important. We're not. The sun doesn't rotate, dude. We're flat. Have you heard their theory of of plane travel? Planes just go up like a helicopter and drop back down. Yeah. I mean, we might get some hate mail on the uh, flat Earthers. I've literally seen planes take off and I've seen helicopters take off they don't so, do the same thing. so if they're doing the same thing you could visibly see that I want to show you how to, to disprove every flat earther climb a fucking tree and you can see further <laughs> yeah if it was flat you could still see the same distance oh man alright so this was a long episode and hopefully you find it as entertaining as well, we did because we were tired of dealing with death, murder, cocaine, and craziness. Yeah, because... I can't take but so much death, murder, and cocaine. If we're going to tempt fate to allow somebody to get to us and silence us... I want it to be the men in black. I want it to be otherworldly. I don't <laughs> want it to be some fucker with a forty-four. I don't want to be some fucker from Arkansas that's like, right now too damn much! I want to go to Arkansas and duck hunt. I don't want to be threatened not to be coming to the state. Well, let's go to Hot Springs, man. Fuck it. Let's tempt fate. Let's just throw caution to the wind. and We'll rent an old building, like put out newspaper articles. Y'all just come tell us you fucked up stories. We won't ever get out. <laughs> we'll have to get uh, the lady from Helen gone to come rescue us. Yeah. Please <laughs> help me, Tom Cruise. <laughs> All right. Coach, you got anything else? Well, I don't, but we got to recommend stuff. I recommend that 
unlike coach, you just don't piss on the tulpa and you just look at it and see what you think about it. Oh, it's just, yeah, <laughs> let me know. That's just so, like, say it. Go ahead and say it. Stupid. stupid. I'm sorry. I know it's a religious thing. And As a, a guy we worked with once I'm said, sorry. that's stupid. I don't want to be like that, but. You are. I just don't buy into it. Maybe I'm wrong. If you're a Buddhist or a Hinduist and you believe in the Tulpa, um, I would love for you to send me an email or a Facebook message explaining why, and I will listen to it with an open heart. But I just don't think it has anything to do with men in black. I don't mean to make light of it, but it's just... It's if you not. believe in the Tulpa, did we feed the Tulpa by doing an episode on it? <sighs> Uh, all right, so our recommendations. I. I... <laughs> no, you go ahead. No, you go. No, really, you, you hang go. up first. <laughs> <laughs> you say goodbye no, first. No, you hang up first. <laughs> now go ahead. I recommend you turn the damn news off. You go outside, and you enjoy your family and your friends. And to hell with everything else. And you can use this whether or not we're in quarantine, martial law, whatever. I don't give a shit. Well, you still need to practice caution, man. That's no bullshit. The CDC is now recommending going out wearing a mask. Go out wear, wear a fucking mask. Oh, let me tell you what I saw today. I'm glad you said that. I saw this lady mm-hmm. who had a mask hanging from her rearview mirror with both windows down. And she wasn't wearing one. Just driving around, pumping gas. Well... I mean, as long as you're sick. And then I saw a lady with a crocheted mask on with Hello Kitty on it at Walmart. Ma'am, I could fart and you'd smell it through that thing. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, in her defense, you're pretty potent. I do eat a lot of cabbage. <laughs> you're terrible. This is terrible. Broccoli farts. Oh, come on, man. This is supposed to be, we're supposed to be <sighs> cleaning up our act. Well, we, we we did do better. I don't know. We, I said, I said well, we did, but we, but we did. We're doing better. We do need to take that into consideration. I do think the man's on to something, so we might need to straighten up. Yeah. But anyway, all right. So your recommendation. Well, since we talked about Dan Aykroyd, I'm going to talk about my one of my favorite all-time actors is the late great John Candy. And John Candy and Dan Aykroyd starred together in a very wonderful film called The Great Outdoors. Love that movie. And I'm going to recommend that movie just because. Um, Introduce Mr. Thick Dick to Mr. Urinal Cake. <laughs> what? You don't remember that line? No. They're at the uh, restaurant where he eats the steak. And he gets up and he goes, I got to go introduce, Dan Aykroyd gets up and says, I got to go introduce Mr. Thick Dick to Mr. Urinal Cake. I don't remember You don't that. remember that? I remember the steak, though. <laughs> He's not done yet. What are you talking about? That's just fat and gristle. He's like, he goes, he goes you may take him a minute, but he'll get that last bite down. That's not the last bite. Like, what you talking about? Isn't that on that plate but gristle and fat? Like, so? <laughs> like, oh, Old 76 or 96. Oh, I'm 96. I was 96 or, yeah. <laughs> that bear where they blow the hair off his ass. That's <laughs> a good movie, it man. It is, man. It now is. Go watch that if you haven't seen it or haven't seen it in a while. If you've never seen Golden Child, watch it too. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Oh, man. Well, like Coach said, we day drinking on a Saturday, and this has been a lovely break from the normal, and hopefully... 
all of our new listeners will enjoy our our episode on the men in black. Well, um, if you did enjoy it, please let us know. Give us a five star rating on any on a Apple Podcast. That'd be great. If you did enjoy it, send us a private message and tell us why. If you have any suggestions for improvements, let us know. If you have a suggestion for a case, please let us know. We love interacting with our uh, listeners. It is one of the it. Every time I see a message come in, it brightens my day. So please reach out, man. Let us know what you think. Um, all the people that contacted us about the cases in Arkansas, we are considering them. And we're also considering never doing a case in Arkansas again <laughs> because we don't want to end up dead, murked. So that's just my opinion. So please reach out. Let us know what you think. If we, you find it in your hearts that you want to give some money, visit us at patreon.com slash mysterious Yes. And I hope you and your family have a lovely, lovely quarantine. And I guess there's only one thing left. A deuces. <laughs> <laughs>